The Lord be with you. Unless you're a mycologist. Any mycologists in the house? No? Okay, fair. What most of us call a mushroom is actually what you'd call the fruiting body. It's an elegant and beautiful delivery system. It's an emissary from the fungal kingdom in all its glory. Journeying up from beneath the earth to scatter another generation of little shrooms. Carrying, carried in spores. The part we call a mushroom, the bit we see is the culmination of a hidden work. The mushroom is the above-ground display of a much larger hidden fungal network beneath our feet. Wisps and tendrils branching out in the dark, creeping around in the twigs and mulch, the damp substrate gathering nutrients and moisture, tidying up the forest floor in loam and soil manure and rotting things, sitting in wait for promising conditions. Mushrooms are beautiful and varied. They're delicious and nutritious. Gems of the pantry and the culinary world. A few years ago, actually, I bought two full brown paper bags from a roadside stand in northern Saskatchewan. And those golden little chanterelle morsels still haunt my dreams. Other mushrooms are not so nice. They get names like death cap mushroom, or this one's good, destroying angels. Some mushrooms carry a real toxic payload, and if consumed, these poisons can go unnoticed for days even, like a time bomb ticking in the body, silently destroying someone's organs because of an omelet? To make matters worse, some of the really dangerous and most poisonous mushrooms look a lot like they're safe and delicious friends. Trained mushroom foragers learn to spot the subtle differences, the smells and the colors and the variations in shape, how to pick and what to look for. It is kind of a strange and fascinating thing when you think about all the times in human history when the hard lessons of nature played out in something as modest and yet terribly consequential as mushroom picking. From the get-go, the church in the world, unleashed in this wild space of the earth, has been finding its way, looking for footing in unlikely places, flourishing and thriving stumbling and suffering, and always, always with the challenges and the questions of how are we supposed to live this Jesus life? How are we supposed to be the church in the world? Last Sunday, Ryan walked us through Paul's radical reordering of the human race, the community of all God's children made new by the gospel of Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you 
are one in Christ Jesus. Divisions of race and class and gender don't work in God's community. Radical inclusion begins with an equal footing. We are one in Christ Jesus. The old ways, which might have been comfortable for some of us, old habits and defense mechanisms, schemes of ranking and sorting human beings, well, they, don't just, they just don't fit anymore. All because of the glimpse we get of this new community. A glimpse of a new creation. I can only imagine what those first church gatherings would have looked like. What a sight to see the mingling of all those people who were alienated and segregated and ranked and sorted. People accustomed to privilege and folks who knew their place. Finally, at long last, brought together in a fresh expression of humanity. This is what it looks like when the Spirit is alive in the world. What a gift. Alive in the Spirit, the church has given shape to such beautiful expressions of love and freedom. Some really spectacular, delicious, and nutritious mushrooms of the Spirit. Reconciliation and healing. But this new humanity stuff does not come easy. From the start, we've been struggling, and it has not always been pretty. And we're still struggling. Because every single generation faces these same challenges, the same old habits, pet prejudices that are really hard to break. And then we get to live with the destructive results, the toxic outcomes of our own worst impulses. The Apostle Paul knew this well enough. He understood this struggle. He lived it many times. Time and again, Paul wrote letters like this one to the people in Galatia with insight, poetic flourish, and a fair degree of frustration and irritation even. Paul cautioned and scolded these churches with a stern warning. Don't fall back into your old habits. Live this new life. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. Today's reading from Galatians 5 illustrates the full spectrum the immense potential alongside the very real dangers of life in the community of free people. This is a struggle, an ongoing fight for the heart of the church. Will we be a community of transforming love and mercy? Or will we bite and devour one another? Take care that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul sketches for us two kinds of communities, ways of being, ways of living, shaped by opposing forces in the world. One marked by what he calls works of the flesh, and one shaped by the Spirit of Christ. Now before I say anything about the flesh, it's worth noting that 
the language might be a little confusing, but this is not a condemnation of your body. We are God's creatures made of what we are, flesh formed of the dust of the earth, made in God's image, and all the good things we do, all the bad things we do, all of our pleasures and all of our pains, they happen in these fleshy bodies. God doesn't hate our flesh. And neither should you. There is no shame in being made of the stuff God chose to make us of. Here, though, Paul has a much broader concept of the flesh. For him, when he says the flesh, he's got a big thematic descriptive image. The flesh. A force bigger than any of us. It's right there lurking in each of us. It's a way of naming the skewed and damaging inclinations of the human race in history. The survival of the fittest winner-take-all parts of us. The flesh has a selfish, short-term view of the world. The flesh lacks empathy. The flesh has a tendency towards self-gratification, no matter what it costs anyone. The flesh is the urge to bite and devour The flesh is the defensive posture of a race of beings who've made rivalry and violence a habit, inequality a fact of life, and destruction of our environment as casual and a regular daily occurrence. Paul's list of the marks of the flesh are gross and embarrassing. A laundry list of regrettable behavior. And let's be clear, there's something there for everyone. If one part of this list isn't your struggle, maybe you could just keep reading. Sexual exploitation and objectification or carelessness at the cost of real intimacy. The times were unkind, violent, or reckless. Schemes, gossip, selfish attitudes, criticizing, judging one another, envying or hating one another. And for good measure, Paul adds, and things like these. All ways we shortcut and harm ourselves, of course. These are the toxic mushrooms, the embarrassing outcomes of a sick and damaged community. Attitudes and postures that destroy people, tear communities apart, slowly poison relationships. Friends, these are the marks of the flesh, and they have scarred us. They have hurt us. Religion, at its very worst, looks like this. Paul's other list is such a delight. An image of such hope and beauty. It's a a real palate cleanser after that last sticky bit, isn't it? We can't blame anyone for making a poster or a greeting card or a t-shirt or a Sunday school lesson out of that list, can we? In contrast to the marks of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit in creation, beautiful. The Spirit hovering over the chaos of human history, calling people to new life, new creation, new humans, replacing combative religion with faith working out in love. These are the marks of new creation. The spirit of Christ at work in our midst. 
Friends, these fruits of the Spirit, they've blessed us. They've nourished us. They've healed us. The church community at its most beautiful looks like these exquisite mushrooms of the kingdom of God. Fruiting bodies of the Spirit, the holy produce of Christ's Spirit at work in us. So how do we pull this off? How might we resist these entrenched forces at work in our realm? And how do we nurture this spirit stuff in our midst? It isn't easy. This is a struggle. And most of us have some doozy stories to tell. Well, for one part, this isn't a solo effort. This is a group project. Paul didn't write this letter to one deranged individual. This is a work of love written for a whole hopeful community, a room full, just like this one. Now, there are words of warning, certainly. And to be clear, we don't gain anything by being spiritually naive or by avoiding difficult conversations, skipping over the parts we don't want to read or glossing over the awkward list so that we can just get to the nice one. But we should be reminded that these letters are also words of encouragement and hope. This is something you can do. You can be mindful to the ways that you have been recipients to so much grace. We can call to mind the times when our brothers and our sisters have been kind and gentle and patient with us, when we've been unkind and obnoxious and selfish. We're in this together. This is a life of practice. It is long and it is slow, maddeningly slow sometimes. It's the practice of waiting and listening, forgiving and reconciling. It's the practice of being alive and awake to the Spirit of God, even as we struggle against this thing, this work of the flesh that confounds us every day. New creation, new people, beautiful, fruiting bodies of the Spirit. May you be surprised and delighted today by the Spirit's work in our midst. These fruits of the Spirit are living displays of a larger, wider, mysterious, and beautiful work in the universe that we have only just begun to see. Thanks be to God. Amen.